when it comes to the just the punting part and the onside kicking, you know, a lot of people don't like it, think it's not good, think it won't work, whatever, without no, having any knowledge of the numbers, the analytics of the game. But but j- just because it's so different than what they've seen. But but think about it, you know, and I, we are brainwashed into thinking that that's the way the game's supposed to be played. Oftentimes we're brainwashed into thinking that's you know, that that something should be exactly like the professionals do it, you know, regardless if they're right or wrong. And and I don't mean brainwashing in a bad way. I think there's good brainwashings as well. But, but you know, always said, pretend you're an alien coming from another planet. you never seen the game of football. But somebody just quickly could, you know, let's say they were highly intelligent life forms. They could scan the rules and take in all the rules immediately and understand the rules, but had no game concepts at all. When it got to fourth down and they saw you backing up and punting the ball, you know, sticking a guy 15 yards back there and kicking it and giving it to the other team, I think they would ask, what are you doing? You're giving up, you know, one-fourth of your tries here to get that first down to give it to the other team. Why would you do that? And, and because they're unbrainwashed. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, plenty to get to today. The man you heard at the top was Presbyterian coach Kevin Kelly, a.k.a. the coach who never punts. Such a unique, fun conversation from a guy who really sees the sport differently, and I think you'll know that listening to it. We're also going to do a little fall camp by our cell, and then we'll close with mowing the lawn and figuring it out and saving that one for a little while. I wanted to start off today by asking a question about the late Bobby Bowden, and it's something that's been on my mind since the Florida State coach died at the age of 91 on Sunday. You you see the outpouring of support by former players, media members, anybody who crossed paths with him. I'm sure you've already seen that on social media. I wasn't one of those people who ever had the privilege of of meeting him or knowing him or anything like that. But looking back on his career made me ask this question. Do we allow Bobby Bowdens to exist in college football anymore? What I mean by that is this. The guy coached at a major program until he was 80 years old, but he didn't win his first national championship until he was 64 years old. That was in year 18 at Florida State. Think about that. Year 18, Bowden finally wins it all in 93, and then he admits that he thought he was going to be one of those coaches who just never could win a national title. That's like the most humble yet unbelievable thing I've ever heard from a coach, but he had this great perspective and you really kind of see it when you look back on on the way that he talked about his program and, and the expectations that came with it. From 87 to 92, he was the epitome of the coach knocking on the door. We talk about that a lot with Kirby. We talked about it before Spurrier won it all at Florida. He was just always there. During that stretch from 87 to 92, Every year was a top four finish. Five of those six years, though, he had losses to Miami, three of which were just beyond devastating. Blow a 19-3 lead in 1987, then wide right part one in 1991, wide right part two in 1992. Brutal, brutal ways to lose. That six-year stretch, if you're a Florida State fan, in many ways, Super rewarding because you saw what it was like before Bobby Bowden, but also the most agonizing, frustrating thing in the world. But think about what preceded it. We can talk a lot about the sliding doors with Bobby Bowden, like how he turned down Alabama and LSU to stay at Florida State. By the way, read Matt Hayes' first and 10 piece on that. It is awesome. SaturdayDownSouth.com. Go check it out. 
we talk about the fact that, you know, like he, he turned down these big time programs in 79 and 89. I realized LSU wasn't then what it is today. Bobby Bowden also didn't want to come to come to the SEC with Florida State. He he nixed that. He thought that the ACC was a better option. The sliding doors are all there. But what I think about is Bobby Bowden, if he had gone through this this time in the 21st century, from 1981 to 1986, he did not have a top 10 finish. He lost at least three games every year. That's six seasons with at least three losses. He had finished up year 11 at that point, by the end of that stretch. And he's coming off of a 7-4-1 season. Throwback to ties. Those were the worst. 57 <laughs> years old. Does that coach get a year 12 in today's college football world? I don't know. I really don't know. Even a guy who did as much for the program as Bobby Bowden did, I don't know that patience now is different than it used to be. I, I think it's absolutely different now than it used to be, actually. You don't get to have six years away from competing for rings. Because think about it. You could have argued that Bobby Bowden peaked in 1979-1980 when he had consecutive top six finishes. And then the 81 regular season ends with three consecutive losses, including a 58-14 beatdown at home at the hands of Southern Miss. Oh. But Florida State did not bail on him. Didn't bail on the guy who built the program. Didn't say he's over the hill or anything like that. He didn't bail on them when he could have left and had the chance to. I'm just not sure that that guy exists anymore. Guys like Vince Dooley, Joe Paterno, Bobby Bowden, in terms of just on-the-field stuff, those guys all needed at least 17 years to win it all for the first time. Even though, looking back, they had tons of years before then where they could have been fired or left for another job and just looked for a fresh start. I don't know that Bowden's exist in college football anymore in this world where we have billion-dollar TV contracts and $20 million buyouts. And it bums me out a little bit to think about that because he needed that, t that time. And I'm, I'm so glad that he got that time at Florida State because when you think back on the 20th century of college football, you cannot tell the story without Bobby Bowden. Think about the lives that he impacted. 44 years in one place. 44 years. Nick Saban wouldn't even be halfway through his tenure at Alabama if, he was, if we were talking about four decades at one place. College football needed people like Bobby Bowden to get the game to where it is today. We should just be grateful that Bowden left his mark when he did. Will, fire away. Yeah, no, I, um, that's actually a really good point about taking him so long. And, I mean, I guess the, the only corollary you could see is maybe like a Gary Patterson um, or... Um, Built him a statue. Yeah, or, or maybe like a Pat Fitzgerald, but we've talked about kind of their show. They're not exactly like FSU um, as far as, you know, that, that upside. Seems like, you know, today, uh, I think you make a really good point. We're looking more at the ceiling of a guy as opposed to the floor. Um, and even, you know, you look at Coach O at LSU, he has one bad season after that incredible season, and it's already, you know, they're knocking on the door trying to get him out of there. And no one thinks that's crazy. And that's what I think about as a current SEC fan. It's like you look at Bowden, you look at maybe, you know, he, he – some would say, you know, maybe he hung on a little bit too long, but you look at what's happened since, especially since Jimbo has left. And it's like, man, like, you know, we can't take these guys for granted. We can't take these guys that are part of the program, that are, you know, love the program. And especially in today where things are so transactional and guys are always kind of looking for that next opportunity. Like you said, you know, Bowden loved FSU. 
Um, that, that was a mutual love between those two. Made them into exactly what they were. And it's like, yeah, like as college football starts to get more and like the NIL and being a little bit more of a marketplace and being a little bit more about that big season and, and the upside, I think, you know, there is a place where we need to start to appreciate guys that are floor raisers and guys that are perfect for their for their programs. And I feel like fan bases need to be a little bit more patient with guys because, yeah, I mean, that gamble, not even a gamble, that patience paid off for them. And you love to see it. It's hard to be patient. And there are examples where being patient has probably backfired. Coaches mm -hmm. that got too long and maybe were over the hill. And, and, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that he should have been uh, forced out sooner or something like that. But I just think that you look back on the program that he built and the trust that he had within the athletic department where it wasn't this constant battle, it wasn't a rotating door of athletic directors or somebody that comes in and wants to, to get him out of there. And it's important. And without those people and without you know the, the patience to be able to kind of withstand some of those tough times, get the recruiting back on that level, you just wouldn't have had some of these college football giants. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. Talk about this all the time, guys. It's the middle of peak fall camp season. I know, we're only like in week two, technically, but if you're not already subscribed to the Saturday Football Newsletter, I don't know what you're doing. You just, all you gotta do is go to your computer, go to your phone, whatever, go to your tablet. A lot of people still like tablets. Type in saturday.football. You're going to go there, you're going to put your email address in, and just like that, you're going to have the best college football news sent to your email address each and every time we crank out a newsletter. That's not every day. It's not going to be an everyday thing, but we're doing, I believe we're going to three a week right Ooh. just now. Adam Spencer, Dustin Schutte, they've been all over that. You want to be an informed college football fan. You don't necessarily want to sift through all the social media, or maybe you still like going on social media and you just want to have something to supplement that coverage. The Saturday Football Newsletter is the place to get it. I had an SID at SEC Media Days tell me, I love your newsletter. It, it gets me up to date. It makes me feel informed. I feel like I don't have to necessarily go through a bunch of different sites to find all the important news. It's just there. And it's in my email email inbox every single time I want it to be. I, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. That's, that's, that's a real testimony. So go subscribe to the Saturday Football Newsletter right now. Again, that's saturday.football. Put your email address in. I promise you won't regret it. Fall camp buy or sell. Let's do it. Let's buy or sell some fall camp storylines. Let's do the first one that I, I spoke a little bit about last week, but this news broke after we had recorded, of course, a little throwback to when that used to always happen and on seemingly a weekly basis. Buy or sell, Max Johnson is going to be a star following the injury to Miles Brennan. I'm buying this. And I know, look, I, I've said more times than I can probably count which I can't count very high, so that doesn't mean a lot. I have said the line about how close LSU was to losing both games that he started and that we probably let that shape our opinions of him a little bit too much. But I have also been saying that LSU is set up incredibly well at the quarterback position, which, well, how weird is that to say? Uh, I, I would have agreed with you before the injury. I think LSU having two quarterbacks on the roster isn't great. <laughs> Fair, fair. <laughs> I think that Max Johnson's good. I like him a lot. The issue is, you know, when we got to the TJ Finley last year, we don't even have a third guy. So we're going to have like some Kayshawn Boutte Wildcat if that second guy goes down. 
I mean, crazier things have happened. You know, Kentucky was still able to make it work. Lynn, Lynn Bowden back in the day. Um, I, the Garrett Mus- Nussmeyer storyline is is one that LSU fans are going to be following very closely. You mm-hmm. can have a true freshman backup. I mean, LSU did last year. I don't think that was the reason that they necessarily went 5-5. Five and five. But the point is, I think Max Johnson, as long as he can stay healthy, is going to be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And... I think it's the year of the lefty in college football. That might be a separate take for a separate time, but you got Max Johnson, Dylan Gabriel, Michael Penix Jr., you got Brendan Armstrong, all of them in my top 25 quarterbacks this year. Again, go to SaturdayDownSouth.com for all of your great top 25-week content. Another shameless plug. A lot of people are talking about Max Johnson being a perfect fit with the RPOs. Jake Peets is going to be all about that with his system. You heard Hester talk about that on this podcast. Johnson's sample size isn't really with the RPOs. Actually, a small sample size, but SEC StatCat was all over this. They had Johnson running RPOs on just 3.33% of his snaps, which in the SEC last year, only Leach's air raid quarterbacks had a lower percentage. I still, though, think that the skill set is there to be able to execute it. I think the mobility, the decision-making is very promising based on what we've seen. I think Brennan's arm's a little bit better, um, but Johnson checks all the boxes you want in a modern quarterback. He's going to be able to do those design QB draws. I used to love when Joe Brady would dial those up for Joe Burrow. That play was money in the bank. I think it's just so underrated. If we want to talk about NCAA football, that <laughs> that right there, that's going to get you a big chunk of yards. Um, Johnson is going to be able to keep a defense honest, and that's what I like. I, I don't think you can just play drop eight coverage against him. He doesn't really get rattled going through his progressions, which I like. And he's perfectly fine being able to tuck it and run it, get that five, six-yard gain, and teams do want to play that drop coverage. So I'm not selling my Miles Brennan stock, and I'm buying that Johnson is going to be really, really good in 2021. Will, how do you feel about that? I feel great. Um, Like I said, the depth at QB doesn't make you feel good for him taking a lot of hits, but the one thing that you love to see about him is that he's fearless. And at the end of the day, that was what he had going for him in this battle with Miles Brennan because Miles Brennan, after this long history at LSU, it always kind of felt like he was a little bit squeamish in the pocket. I mean, Max Johnson is, you know, he has starter mentality. He has a little bit, you know, not all of it, but an amount of what Joe Burrow had as far as being this tough guy, being a great leader, being the guy that you want to represent your program. And he's walked that way, talked that way since day one. Um, You know, once he came in, um, you know, spelling TJ Finley, we were all kind of like, this guy's a little bit different. So it's great to see that. And, and, you know, especially in college football, the goal is to make the offense easier. You don't want to have a hard offense for your quarterback. And that's what LSU had last year with that pro style with Scott Linehan. So exactly what you talked about, those RPOs, getting him out of the pocket, getting him moving around as that extra dimension to where things can get easier. Because, you know, if your offense, if you're kind of down the receiver depth chart, you got a couple things going for you. The best thing that you want to have is the ability to keep the defense guessing. And Max Johnson's exactly that. Um, and quick shout out have we talked about uh big bad brad his dad on tiktok fire away this is your realm not mine man so if you guys don't know brad johnson right it's max johnson's dad the, the super bowl i have seen some of these i right. have seen some of these yes. so the super bowl winning quarterback for the bucks right and so his dad goes by big bad brad and he has a tiktok where he just does trick shots and it's the most wholesome thing in the world go check it out follow him on twitter on tiktok it's, it's incredible. He just puts on like 80s rock music and just yeets balls like 80 yards into a basketball goal. Every time I see one on the feed, it brightens up my day. So big fan of, you know, that whole family, the vibe they got going on. It's going to be a fun year. It's like Boomer Dude Perfect. Yes, it's Boomer Dude Perfect. That's exactly what it is. I love it so much. Okay. I need to check that out a little bit more. So I've seen a couple. I need to check out more. Next, buy or sell. 
Marshawn Lloyd is going to step in and pick up where Kevin Harris left off. Probably need a little bit of context with that. Little little context, important. Kevin Harris is out, the South Carolina running back. He is out for a little while at least with a minor back procedure. He said he expects to be ready for the opener. Um, so has every athlete who has ever played <laughs> played a sport who said, I'm going to be ready for this game. So I, I take that for what it is. Marshawn Lloyd said, it's time for me to step up, which it is. He said Kevin Harris was the leading rusher in the SEC, and you can't beat that. Unrelated note, kind of in a way, Marshawn Lloyd is a really impressive dude when you listen to him, and I expect to see him at SEC Media Days maybe next year, year after that, whatever. Um, we'll be hearing a lot more from him. Marshawn Lloyd said the exact right thing, and I'm not saying that he can't become a star, but I'm selling the notion that he's going to immediately step in and do the things that Kevin Harris did. It's hard for me to assume that someone is going to be able to take over games like that from the jump, especially coming off a torn ACL. And I think Lloyd could be really, really good in the right role. It's the thing that I come back to with Zamir White. It is so difficult to be full speed and hit the hole like that after such a major rehab process on the knee. Adrian Peterson ruined it for the rest of running backs. I've tempered my year one expectations. And I think even if Harris is dealing with a nagging injury, I think Lloyd's workload is going to be tempered just a bit. Lloyd mentioned guys like um, Zaquandre White, uh, Rashad Amos also stepping up. I'd rather, rather like, I think this is more about the South Carolina coaches not having to give him the ball 20 times a game. They want to use Luke Doty on some of those design runs. They do not want to have their their big-time blue-chip recruit immediately coming off of knee surgery being thrust into this role. And that also kind of factors into your decision of how early do you bring back Kevin Harris? Because you get Eastern Illinois in the opener. You should be able to win that without Kevin Harris. Do you then take a more conservative approach and hope that you don't necessarily rush him back too soon and then force Marshawn Lloyd into that? That's what I'm interested to see. So I'm, I'm selling the notion that Marshawn Lloyd is going to step in and pick up where Kevin Harris left off because as much as I said last week, well, you know, some of the advanced metrics don't really favor Kevin Harris, he's still an excellent player. He is still one of the best running backs in all of college football, stepping in and, and filling those shoes, as, as Lloyd said, not necessarily a given. Will, you got any Kevin Harris thoughts? No, I just think that, you know, after our, our deep, dive on Kevin's, Kevin Harris um, last week. I think, you know, I feel like we're well-versed in him. I feel like, yeah, that that's obviously tough. It's a tough thing to overcome. But, you know, we really like that coaching staff over there. I think that's fair to say. Um, so I think that with the depth they brought in, kind of the, some of the noise, you know, picking up um, Muschamp's recruiting was actually, you know, one of the things that kept him around. So hopefully they'll be able to, you know, not let that set them back too far. But yeah, like you said, I mean, he's a talented guy. You know, first or second team, all SEC was definitely, you know, not out of the question for him. So hopefully they'll be able to keep it rolling. Next buy or sell, Joey Gatewood is going to be Kentucky's starting quarterback. Goatwood. (laughs) Next Cam Newton, people are saying. So there was video of Gatewood coming out with the ones at Kentucky Fan Day. And Adam Luckett, shout out KSR, reported that Liam Cohen said that Gatewood did a great job pushing the ball down the field this spring. His accuracy over 20 yards was pretty nice to see in terms of the down of the field accuracy, getting the ball out on time. I'm happy for Joey Gatewood, and I do want to see him on SEC field because you kind of know the story and the way that it went at Auburn and kind of committing to a different offense at Kentucky. You hope the best for the guy. But I'm selling that he's going to be QB1 in Lexington. 
I have pivoted off of my spring take that Bo Allen will be the guy because I think Will Levis is going to be the guy. Some of that is the fact that Levis transferred to Kentucky after Cohen was hired and Gatewood committed to, like I said, run Eddie Grant's offense. Even though you've heard some really strong things about Gatewood's arm out of camp, which I don't doubt that he's improved immensely from a guy who three years ago looked like he didn't belong on the field in Auburn's spring game. But Levis has a cannon. And I've seen the mobility. I remember watching him last year in that game against Nebraska where he steps in for Sean Clifford, who was just a disaster in the first part of the season. And he nearly leads a comeback for Penn State. And I thought that Nebraska really had a problem defending him for a bit. I just think he needs better play calling. And Penn State's backfield at the time was decimated with injuries. Nobody cares about that. I think he's going to get more favorable surroundings at Kentucky than he did at Penn State. Weird thing to say. Will Levis can sling it. And I'm not just saying that because of some of the videos that came out from UK Fan Day. One where he fumbled this low snap, he picks it up, and he drops this 40-yard dime to Josh Ali in the end zone. The guy just doesn't really seem rattled, and I, I like that in a starting quarterback. And if you read the Bruce Feldman piece that came out a few months ago, Levis worked with this Canadian biochemics expert, this guy named Rob Williams, who also worked with guys like Bo Nix this offseason, but worked with a lot of different quarterbacks. He's becoming like all the rage right now. And this was essentially all about movement. It's all about improving your passing by refining your movements and making sure that you're generating more velocity by not just using your arm. That's basically the premise. And it, it fuels accuracy, and it's basically just a way to lock in on form that a lot of people have maybe overlooked some of the mechanics that have been studied with this. It's very, very in-depth. Go read Bruce Feldman's piece on The Athletic. But I'm just, it's not that I'm necessarily out on Gatewood and him having a home somewhere. I'm just, I, I just think that Levis steps in, becomes the guy and does exactly what Liam Cohen wants. And I don't think that he has the same sort of accuracy issues that Joey Gatewood does. So pivoting a little bit on that, and the people that I've talked to at Kentucky legitimately still think it's a, it's a battle. This is still very much up in the air. This is not one of those things that's already been decided. Although sometimes with offensive coordinators, I think this is like, uh, <laughs> all right, it's going to get weird for a minute here. Um, I think it's a little bit like uh, The Bachelor. Okay. Or The Bachelorette, where... They know within probably a week or so of who they're going to end up with. Or maybe they know like the final two. They all know when they step on that show and they get a chance to actually talk to these people. Mm -hmm. um, and I tend to think that when an offensive coordinator steps into a new program and he's thinking about building his offense, he knows who his guy is going to be. He knows what he's picturing when he dials up certain looks and he's you know, building out the playbook and doing those things. He knows he has a guy in mind. And maybe that guy has already decided and he's got his mind made up. But I do ultimately think that Levis will be that guy. And Joey Gatewood will unfortunately be not necessarily on the QB1 line for Kentucky at the start of the season. Georgia. All right, let's get to it. You knew it was coming. <laughs> Buy or sell, Georgia has closed the gap among the SEC's top offenses. That's what Kirby said at the start of fall camp. I'm buying this. This is the comparison I make. I got another, let's get weird comparison for you. Have you ever looked at one of those, um, one of those old school big screen TVs compared to all the flat panel ones that they have today? Have you oh, seen yeah. those like side by side? 
Oh yeah. I was at my so I was at my cousin's house the other day, and they have three kids who are between the ages of six and fifteen. They moved into this beautiful house, and in the basement was one of these old school big screen TVs. If you had one of these in like the late nineties, early two thousands. You were you were sitting pretty. You had some money. They were the best of the best. But even kids born in the last fifteen years look at that and go, "What could we, what could you even do with that thing? Would you just like play Atari on it?" And their dad was like, "No, I can still play TV, you know, DVDs, but the picture quality just won't be nearly as good. And we're not going to move this thing out of here because it's so massive, and that's just that just seems like hell." They basically just put their new TV with a flat panel right in front of it. And it's probably one of those TVs from the last three, four years. And you can tell it's just the other TV, the big screen is obsolete in every sort of way. So that's a long winded way of saying George's offense felt a bit like that old school TV. Yeah. They like, they ran some RPOs. They could play some DVDs, but not necessarily with a quarterback who would call his own number on the RPOs, which kind of defeats the purpose of them. That newer TV, which really isn't probably more than a decade or so newer than the other one that I was talking about at my cousin's place, is just so much more capable. You can do a lot more. That's what I feel like we're going to see from Georgia. And it's not necessarily just having a quarterback who's going to keep it on the RPOs because JT Daniels, I don't think he's necessarily going to set a rushing record or anything like that. But we're going to see Georgia stretch the field vertically a lot more. We're going to see them line up in a lot more of these four wide sets and actually have guys who can get open and catch a variety of different, uh, of different types of, of plays that are drawn up. And I, I think that we're not going to have as many games where it looks like their running backs have to fight and claw just to get a five-yard gain, even though their offensive line is winning the battle at the line of scrimmage. But when you're blocking seven, that spacing is just a much bigger challenge. And I found myself saying that a lot with Georgia the last three years, even when they had someone as good as DeAndre Swift back there. I always go back to the 2019 SEC Championship. LSU had the new TV. It, instant, it instantly made the opposing offense, Georgia, look like the old TV. It wasn't even close. And I think by day's end, maybe by halftime, I don't know, Kirby knew it. A game that Georgia was only a touchdown underdog. Remember that. Only a touchdown underdog going into that game. And it felt like LSU was facing a group of five team by the end of the day. And so now, the personnel that Kirby wanted is there. That's been well documented. You have to take shots downfield. You have to mix up the route tree even more. That's what Sark was so unbelievably good at doing last year at Alabama. Look at the play design. You go... Gosh, like, I want to steal that and run that in my backyard football game. I think Todd Munkin is going to have some of that in him. Though probably it's unfair to say that he's going to do it at the level that Sark did in Tuscaloosa. I'm buying that Georgia is taking that next step because it's no longer just throwing five stars at the problem and hoping that it all takes care of itself. Will, anything that stands out about Georgia, anything else, anything you're buying or selling, anything like that? Man, I just love the visual of George's offense as like one of these giant old TVs with just like they're the, so uh, big, like the 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 uh, Smash Brothers melee like menu burned into it because you left it on for a day. Yeah, and like, yep. <laughs> yeah the old I ones mean know. that's uh that's you know that's a good point. And and the thing about George is like I'm always gonna be you know buying Georgia. It's a it's a sickness I have in the off season. Every off season, I'm the guy who gets in on Georgia. And the thing about buying in on Georgia is that they do well enough that even if it's a little bit short, you can still feel good about it because they're so talented. And it's like, you know, I empathize with you Georgia fans as a Les Miles LSU fan in that, you know, every year it's just banging your head into the wall. And it's like, if we could just run more than two routes on this play, if we get a third route on this play, it's over for y'all. 
all crazy, of y'all. Man. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, eventually you would have to think, you know, Kirby is a saving disciple, exactly what you said. You know, Sark, you could see a lot of these highlights from last year. Dudes were just running open downfield for Alabama because he schemed them open. And like I said, it's it, it's not this manliness contest in college football anymore. It, it's about getting your skill players the ball in space. And Georgia has an abundance of skill players. So, you know, these last couple of off-seasons, I feel like have been progress, as hard as that is to say. I agree with it. I do think that they've made progress, as you said, from you know, the Jake Fromm years, and it's like this slow buildup. And a guy like Kirby, who has won so many games in the SEC East, it's going to be hard to get him, you know, to change course a little bit. So it was never going to be this snap your fingers and suddenly they're, you know, Mike Leach. Um, so hopefully this is the year that they look around and they say, you know, we've got a quarterback we love, we got running backs that we love, and we got wide receivers that, you know, they're good, but they're not where we thought they would be. And so you can't put your receivers in a position. This isn't, you know, the Detroit Lions. You don't want to put your receivers every play in a situation they need to win a one-on-one matchup. It's just not the way it works anymore. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always going to be big on buying them because eventually you got to think they're going to figure it out. And I think that Kirby has done enough to, you know, be stable and to never fall off. It's just does he want to be a Tier 1 team? Saban always says that once he realized watching Ole Miss that you're able to get away with more blocking downfield, you're yep. foolish if you don't try and take advantage of that. I think we see Georgia do a lot more of that this year. And to answer the que- like the original question of whether or not I think you know Georgia has has you know narrowed the gap between themselves and other SEC teams, I'm not sitting here today saying like Georgia will absolutely have a better offense than Alabama Ole Miss. Those are the first two teams that come to mind when I think about who will have the best offense in the SEC this year. But Georgia having a top 10 offense in all of college football would be doing just that. And it would be getting to that level that they feel like they need to be at. Because, you know, spoiler alert, I, I don't think Georgia is going to have a, a top, like a top 10, top 15 defense. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's necessarily one that they need to have. And I think that if you look at the past two national champions with 2019 LSU, 2020 Alabama, you can get away with being a little bit suspect on that end of the ball. But Georgia having this top 10 offense is something that feels like this this is setting up in a different sort of way based on the personnel, based on the system that is finally in place. We're not just sitting here talking all about the Georgia offensive line, how it's the best in all of college football. We've done that a million times. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's always ended the same way. So I, I think that that could fuel some of the, the different discussion about Georgia this year. Well, I'd say real Let's quick ki- on that. Georgia's like path as an elite team, I still feel like they'd be kind of a defensive team. And I think that you know your argue, argument about the last two national champions, I think it holds true, but it's inverted. So I feel like Georgia's defensive floor, I don't think they're ever going to have a defense as... I'm not going to say either of those defenses were bad, but they didn't carry the team. I think that with Kirby Smart, you know the pace he's going to play at. Their defense is going to be the strength of their team. So I would argue it's like Georgia's offense just needs to be kind of what those two teams' defenses were in that it can be, you know, a top 20 offense. And if their defense is still around there, that's an elite team. You know what I'm saying? But it can't be they have a top 20 defense and a number 70 offense because then they're in trouble. You know what I'm saying? And... I just don't think I, I just don't think necessarily that that the the ability to defend the pass is going to be there in the same sort of way, and I think yeah. that that's like they finished I think 88th defending the pass last year, and with all those guys, with all of those guys, right? Like we forget about that. Even with Stokes, even with LeCount, like this is still a secondary that struggled so much last year. But 
it, it goes back to the last original year, point. I don't ever want to hold, unless you had like a Todd Grantham-like situation where you were just way worse than everybody else. I, I feel like you just got to throw the numbers out last year because, you know, like I said, the Alabama thing, it's like, if they if they line that same team up this year and have a full camp and have things be a little bit normal, I think their defense is better too. So I'm not going to hold that against Georgia. I'm not going to say that they've like lost it on defense. I don't know. Speaking of numbers, a guy who knows way, way more about them than I do and has spent way more time dissecting them. Kevin Kelly, the Presbyterian head coach. Mm -hmm. If you've never heard of him before, I think he'll get a full rundown in this interview. But basically, Kelly won nine state titles in Arkansas, and he's known as the guy who never punts. He just got his first college gig at uh, Presbyterian College in South Carolina. I thought he would have been a fascinating hire for Kansas. I know Andy Staples banged the drum for that, which we got to dig into that as well. He said he would take $90,000 per win. That was his offer to them. It was pretty public about it. I, I think whether you're a football purist who hates everything that comes out of Kevin Kelly in this interview, or you're an analytics believer who loves this philosophy, I, I think that you'll get a kick out of this. So here is Kevin Kelly. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Presbyterian College coach Kevin Kelly, a.k.a. the coach who never punts. Kevin, I have so many questions for you, and my goal is to get some that you've never been asked before, so that, that's, that's on me. We'll, we'll see how that goes, but let's get into the obvious one first here. You're in the college ranks now after becoming a high school coaching legend in Arkansas, nine state titles, everybody knows. Have you recruited a punter yet? <laughs> No, as a matter of fact, ours transferred, so <laughs> there's that to play with. You know, people joked about that. They said, if you ever become a college coach, what will happen with the punting situation? And and uh, I'd never really thought much about it, but, you know, it, it was kind of a funny thing. Wait a minute. Did he transfer, like, immediately after you were hired? Yeah, pretty quick, yeah. Yeah, you know, and we had a good talk. <laughs> and I said, hey, you know. <laughs> It's just going to be a lot less times, you know, and and uh, and truth be known, I mean, let's be honest. And I had a conversation with her. Look, it's just going to be a lot less times. But sadly, you're a position that really no coach, player, or fan want to ever see you on the field. You know, I mean, it's not like you know, except for your own parents, you know. So, so, uh, but you know, I, I tried to I tried to make a place for him. The kid was actually a good position player in high school, and I said, you know, maybe he can be on special teams. Other than that, kickoff team or something like that, and. But he wanted to punt, and I get it. That's his love and what he wants to do. So went somewhere where he could do more of that. That's pretty much how you got to play this moving forward, right? You have to get that kid who can also help you out in a different sort of area because recruiting someone to primarily punt has got to be just next to impossible given the brand. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and punt-wise, that's the way it is. Kickoff-wise, it's a different kind of kid. It's one that wants to be doing something different. He wants to – uh, learn to onside kick. You know, the field goals, everybody's got to be able to do that, but he needs to be able to onside kick too. And luckily I've got one that's jumped right in and loves it. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But it, but it definitely is it definitely is different in, in ways from the normal team, that's for sure. You've been at Presbyterian for three months now. Have you practiced punting once yet? <laughs> no. No, not yet. I mean, we haven't practiced much <laughs> of anything yet, but, but, but punting's definitely bottom of the totem pole. I heard John Calipari say one time, if I could rank the 30 things that I would want my team to practice over the course of a given day, that uh, you know, practice all of them, and then free throw shooting would be 31 
on that list. That's just you, but with punting and everybody knows that your your style is so unique because it's not that it's never punting, but it's rarely punting. It's two point conversions, it's onside kicks, it's not fielding punts. You are the kid who everyone hated playing against in Madden or like NCAA football. The difference is that most of those kids end up going on to, you know, lead normal lives away from football. You just kept doing that, but in real life. So were you that kid playing video games like that? Well, well, the video games I had when I was a kid were Atari, where there, you know, Atari, there were three block guys, so there wasn't any much of anything. But, but when those first came out, when PlayStation, uh, NCAA football, and Madden came out, of course, I was all in on them. And yeah, I was doing it. I was doing it then, and and uh, most of the time, I was playing players on my team. You know, they loved the game. We'd we'd hold little tournaments and stuff like that. So, so they all converted to my way really quickly. Of course, they were on my team too, so it all it fit in nicely. But. But, uh, you know, that's what I get from all over. I get kids, adults, say you play the game like it's a, like it's a video game. Uh, that's not why we play it that way, but it does appear that way. You said the words, we're brainwashed in society to thinking that things are the way they've always been and football is no different. Can you explain the, the origins? Because I feel like that's really the key to why this has been considered so abstract probably for the last couple decades for you. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I was just reading a couple of things by Bill Connolly about the very same thing, talking about analytics and how it's never really going to take over in football like it has in baseball and basketball for a variety of reasons. But, you know, when it comes to the just the punting part and the onside kicking, you know, a lot of people don't like it, think it's not good, think it won't work, whatever, without no, having any knowledge of the numbers, the analytics of the game, but but j- just because it's so different than what they've seen. But, but think about it, you know, and I – we are brainwashed into thinking that that's the way the game's supposed to be played. Oftentimes we're brainwashed into thinking that's, you know, that, that something should be exactly like the professionals do it, you know, regardless if they're right or wrong. And, and I don't mean brainwashed in a bad way. I think there's good brainwashings as well, but, but, you know, always said, pretend you're an alien coming from another planet. You never seen the game of football, but somebody just quickly could, you know, let's say they were highly intelligent life forms. They could scan the rules and take in all the rules immediately and understand the rules, but had no game concepts at all. When it got to fourth down and they saw you backing up and punting the ball, you know, sticking a guy 15 yards back there and kicking it and giving it to the other team, I think they would ask, what are you doing? You're giving up, you know, one-fourth of your tries here to get that first down to give it to the other team. Why would you do that? And and because they're unbrainwashed. I think it's the same thing. You know, I got that example with my own son growing up. He had only known football my way, and every time we watched games together as he was growing up, he would always ask me, Dad, why are they punting? I mean, he really didn't understand. So the unbrainwashed. But but I do think that people just, you know, they see things that are done day-to-day, every day, a lot. And especially if you're done by higher-end people and think that's the way it's supposed to be done. But, you know, if if things are supposed to say the say the same, I say this all the time. We'd still be taking horse and buggy to work and not driving cars, and you know, wouldn't be flying all over the country and all that kind of stuff. I mean, things would have simply stayed the same. But but things are, you know, things are there to change and try to find better ways to do it. That's all we're trying to do. When did you find that better way? You know, I started finding a better way in 2003, and then it was pre-Moneyball, pre-analytics, pre-all that, and I got lucky and ran across a study and, and decided to try it. And, and and luckily, I had some success early with it, with the not punting nearly as much. Now, we still punted, I think, 21 times, in our first, and we played 15 games that year. 
uh, and we we punted 21 times. So we were punting a lot more then because now we've only punted like eight times in the last 16 years. But but I had some success early, and it made me want to start looking for other ways that were not not to be different, just to be different. But it made me want to start looking at other ways that were different in football that might be more successful or give you an advantage. And slowly but surely, you know, I've I've been able to do that. And 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 especially once analytics became prevalent, you know, whether we use them or not in football, but they're out there for us to look at and, and, and draw draw inferences from and things like that. Do you have coaches who over the years have just looked at you and, and said to your face, maybe behind your back probably as well, dude, you're crazy. This isn't the way that you're going to be able to win. There's a reason that we put in these principles years and years ago. It's a field position game. Have you had those conversations? And if so, like, how do you even approach that? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. This happened all the, a lot, actually. Early on, when I first started doing this, especially, you know, I, I absolutely love football, and I've told the story a million times. I, I probably wouldn't be alive if it weren't for the game of football. But, you know, I didn't have a great life growing up as a kid. And, and but, but the one thing that kept me from doing anything stupid was – I wanted to go to football practice and be a part of my team. And so I love the game, and I preface it by saying that because, you know, when I first started doing different things, I had coaches that were around the game for a long time telling me I was making a mockery of the game. And that, that kind of hurt, you know. And and then I'd go to coaches' meetings and coaches' clinics, and people start sitting away from me. And, you know, like I had leprosy or something. And, and you know, that bothered me a little bit. And, and then finally – you know, when they started talking to me, they would. They'd say, you're crazy or, you know, different things like that. And, and that, that that part didn't bother me as much as you're making a mockery of the game because I love the game and I, I didn't want people to think that. And that wasn't it. I was just trying to find a way to win games at a consistent level. Whether I had a good run of talent that year or not, I wanted to find a way to win consistently. So the good news for me was it's funny how coaches, sometimes we love the media and sometimes we can't stand the media because – you know, I mean, if things go bad, it, it really goes bad on the media and social media. And things go well. That's another. But but the good thing about the media was on this is when analytics came out, it spread fast. And then people started looking and going, maybe he's not so crazy. And then it turned it completely flipped and it became a real popular thing. And since I was the only one that was really doing it uh, more than anybody on any level in college, pro or high school, it opened up a lot of doors and helped me to do some cool things that I've, I would have never gotten to do ever, you know, win the disruptive innovation award at, at the Tribeca film festival and speak at, you know, the Sloan sports analytics, MIT clinic thing and, and uh, meet some of the greatest people in the game and, and do corporate speaking and, and, and win consistently when other people wanted to in high school, wanted to a lot of times rise and fall according to the talent level of different classes. So, you know, looking back on it, I'm glad I had some success early because if I wouldn't have, you know, I might have I might have stopped like everybody was telling me because there was a very negative peer pressure about it. You talk about the the understanding of analytics and that decision making process and letting that fuel your style. But I think there are still a lot of people that when they picture analytics in football, they picture somebody going to a chart. And what does the chart say about going for two? What does the chart say about going for going for it on fourth and six or something like that when you're on your own 45? 
You seem to have simplified it even more so, though. And it doesn't seem like you're the type of guy who's going to sit there with a chart on the sideline and try and look at what do I do in this situation or that situation. You use the word analytics because that's what it is, but your analytics seem way different to to any that's being considered, I think, in, in modern college football. Do you have the, that, that, that thought process pre-game, or how exactly does that work when you are making those decisions on the sideline? Well, that's a, that's a, that's another really good question. The the thing about anything is, you know, you can use a step by step process in anything that's that you come across that's good in life, or you can try to go understand the why and build what you're doing around that. And that's what I want to do on analytics. I, I didn't want a chart that says, okay. Let's see, it's fourth and four here. We're on our own 48. Here's the score. Here's the quarter. Here's what's going on. Do I go for it or not? I, you know, I, I don't want to chart and have to stop and look because I don't think that moment in time can take everything into the into the equation. Now, I do think there's a place for it, but I, I, I don't believe in that. What I wanted to know in the world of analytics is I want to know the why. And here's, here's an example of that. Um, you know, in, in, in the game of football, I guess it was two years ago, I think it was the, the last time I read this, 77% of all college football games were won by simply by the team that had the most sacks in the game. Okay? If you had more quarterback sacks than the other team, you won 77%. That's only slightly below the turnover battle. And so I wanted to know the why on that. I mean, you know, it makes sense why you got a sack. I mean, they lost yards on that play. But what does that really mean? Well, if you go and look, and, and I looked at our own my own team, and I went back a few years and looked at all of our drives – and we go for it on fourth down, so it really shouldn't even affect us as much as it does everybody else because we've got four downs to make up those lost yards. But we were scoring touchdowns at around an 88% rate, which is phenomenally high because I think the national average is like 33 or something. But when we got a sack on a drive, that number went from 88 down to 8. And that's for a team that led the country in offense five straight years out of 16,000 high schools. So – those are really hard drive killers. And you would look, and I would go back and try to relive. I would go back and pull up the video and try to relive those moments. And, and I think I'm a really good offensive play caller and play designer and all that kind of stuff. But you go from first and 10 to second and 18, and it's a game changer. It is a drive killer. You know, you go from from second and six to third and 14, and, and it's just show the numbers show you're not going to make a first down. So I wanted to build my team around that. So I just went to my defensive coaches and said, look, not only normal blitzes on passes, passing downs, but any down you think they might be passing on. You know, we find tendencies. You, you know, we need to blitz more. You need to design better blitzes, have reasons for those blitzes. Scout their offense and see what they don't stop blitzes well. Don't just run what we do well, but run what they don't do well. And let's get more sacks in them. Then I went to my quarterbacks, and we changed the way we were making reads and keys to get rid of the ball sooner to avoid those sacks. And then I pounded those numbers into our kids' heads on offense and defense because I think if they know that that's a real thing, you know, they'll put a little bit more into remembering those blitzes, to remembering those schemes. The quarterbacks will put a little more into those keys and getting rid of the ball faster because they know we lose games if those things happen or win them if we get them. So I, I found five or six things that I really liked analytically that I could build my team around. You can around some, you can't around some. Some just happen. And uh, and I built our team around those things. And, you know, it's uh, I, I won three state championships in my first 11 years, and I'm proud of that. You know, we worked really hard. Our school had never even been to the finals when I took over as head coach. And 
got a group of coaches that believed in me and, and we did some analytic stuff, but we were working on it. But after that, after that, that 11th year, I really, I spent my second stint at, at the Sloan sports analytics thing in Boston. And I really went back in 2014 and said, I'm really building our team around analytics. And we won six of the next seven state championships. And and I don't think, you know, I don't think we got. I don't think I became a way better coach. I think I got better, but I think I really learned how to use analytics and build your team around the things like you're talking about. I don't need a chart that tells me this play what to do. I needed to build my team around the ones that mattered the most. And you know, there's things like 20 yard plays. Well, you know, I was. It's funny. I was reading the thing just today. On Bill Connolly did a thing on on explosive plays and how he thinks they're more random. And, and the data shows that in college football. He used 2015, 2016, I think, to to look at the data. And it shows that over a two-year period, all college football games, it's really random, the explosive plays. And it, it they're just not, you know. But but I think, you know, I, I tweeted, Bill, I said, I, I think that you can design plays. Are you willing to do hook and laterals early in the game instead of just at the end? Are you willing to run trick plays all throughout the game? that are shown to be higher rates of, of 20 yard plays. You know, not everybody is. And if you do one, you do one a game, you don't do four a game. And maybe there's a way to do those things. And, 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 and I implemented some of those things. So, you know, there's, we looked at uh, first downs, you know, in college football, if, if you don't make four yards on the, not first down, but on the first play of your series, you're 40% less likely to score. Now, what we did was we built our team on that. On defense, we scouted out what their tendencies were on first play of the series and go, we're going to stop those. Because if we stop them in less than four yards, that cuts their chances down 40% of scoring on that drive. I mean, those are huge. So that's what I mean by – and I think that's what you mean by using analytics, not a chart. And uh, there's a place for both. But we went that route, and and it's been – you know, we started winning games at a crazy high rate. It's all gas, no breaks, even on defense. I, I love it. That is the epitome of a guy that you hate to play against when you're playing Madden or NCAA or something like that. Um, I, I read that you once scored 29 points before the other team touched the ball. That had to just be the coolest thing ever, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was even more cool because Sports Illustrated was following us around a little bit. And, and you know, we've had oh, those gosh. times. We've had those times. Uh, throughout where we've got HBO Real Sports or even Fox Businesses, you know, different people following us around for whatever reason. They can look for a story. And uh, so, yeah, we were playing a team, I think it was the second or third biggest team in our state, and they were physically bigger than our guys and all that kind of stuff. And and we worked onside kicks, you know, a little bit more than normal because if we get one, we ran at a super high rate. I think we're like 136 and five or something like that. So, so you know, in the year before, they had actually beaten us. And they'd beat us like 36 to 35 or something like that. And uh, so so we worked really hard on onside kicks. Well, we uh, they they kicked off to us first. And we went and scored, went for two and made it eight to nothing. And then we went and uh, we onside kicked and we got it and we scored. And we onside kicked and we got it and we scored. And we onside kicked and we got it and we scored. And so it was 29 to nothing. Here's the kicker before they touched the ball, but it was only three and a half minutes into the game. So the team that had, that had beaten us the year before and was favored to beat us that night, according to the local media, it was over with three and a half minutes into the game. I mean, you're down 29 to nothing. You're, you're probably not coming back from that. You know, it's very few times. So, 
And the coolest thing probably from that standpoint was, I say coolest, it actually caused me a little bit of trouble, but Sports Illustrated ran the story and called me a couple days later and said it was the most hits at that time. It was 2011, I think it was. And it was the most hits they received on their website for one story in the history of their, you know, of their website, which was pretty cool. The bad thing is, is I got like thousands of emails and most of them, they ran the story and said they kind of had, they didn't, they weren't real specific on which team was the lesser populated team and the other team was the second biggest in the state. So everybody thought I was the big team beating up on the small team instead of mm. the other way around. And so I was getting so many dirty things, like, why are you on psychic in the if you know you're going to kill them anyway and this kind of stuff? <laughs> you know, you can't respond to that. But but it was pretty cool. We've had a lot of pretty cool stories like that. You do onside kicks until your team has a substantial lead. I, I think that's, that that needs to be known for those who maybe don't know the story as well. What do you consider a substantial lead? And is it almost a slap in the face to the other team when you just start kicking away like normal? I know. You know, when I go back, that, that's another good point. I go back and forth on that. We, first, I'll answer the first part of the question, and that is, that is we, we onside kick. In Arkansas, it was real easy if – we got up 21, and I knew we were pulling away. If it's like 21 to nothing, 21 to nothing is different than 35 to 14. But if I knew we were pulling away at 21, then I'd start kicking it in the field. But in Arkansas, once you get up 35 on a team, you know, it's, they implement something called the mercy rule, and that means the clock starts running. And so once you get up 35, it's over with. No team has ever come back from the mercy rule, you know, because the clock starts running. You don't have enough time. So that was a for sure. That was it. We, we weren't going to do that. We, you know, we weren't going to we weren't going to onside kick anymore. And and then the, the other part of your question is, is it a slap in the face? Of the team? You know, the, you know, we've come so far full circle. And what I mean is, I mean, if you go back and I'm a football historian, too, and I think it was Georgia Tech played Cumberland. And there were some different circumstances way back then when they played, but it was 222 to nothing. And, you know, and maybe that's where it all started. Reserve was like, wow, y'all got beat really bad. You know, you can't beat somebody that bad. That's embarrassing, whatever, whatever. Then state started invoking the mercy rules and running the clock. And, and you know, you see coaches get mad at each other, saying you're running up the score. You know, but realistically, you know, uh, there's two things that come along with it. Number one, you know, we're not going to keep we, – we never kept our starters in. And we're, we're playing sophomores, but do you not, you know, other teams though would just know you've got to run the ball only for instance. And they would put like eight guys in the box and play man to man on the outside, knowing you're not supposed to call a pass play. You literally can't block them. So your sophomore poor running backs are just getting killed back there. And it's, it's not even right and fair. So, so you're like, well, that's not fair. So, so maybe we can just at least run our offense and not call any long pass plays. You know, you do that, and if you call a pass play at all and you're up by 35, you know, the other coach is pissed off, and you're like, what is going on? You know, and they're all bad. But, but at the same time, what do you do? You know, you got your sophomores in there, and there's two sides to this too. They're driving. Let's say they drive down the field, even if they're running the ball, but running the ball short passes, and they're trying to play offense, and we're trying to develop players because those guys will be playing next year or the next year. And you also want to develop them. But at the same time, they move the ball down. Is it not more embarrassing for the other team if all of a sudden you take three knees on the five-yard line or four knees on the five-yard line than if you go ahead and just play football? I think it is. You know, I coached against Gus Malzahn, who's at Central Florida right now. My very first game I was ever the head high school coach. He beat me 62 to nothing. And 
was, uh, you know, and, and, and was scored, you know, <laughs> at the end of the first half, the second half. I mean, he didn't slow down any. That was in 2003. And they immediately come running over to me, the media does, run after the game because did you feel like Gus was running it up on you? And I'm like, no, it's our it's our job to stop them. And if we don't want that to happen, if we don't want 60 hung on us, we need to get better. We need to find a way, you know, and, and that's life. I mean, I don't think that Amazon dominates the world right now in, 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 in what they do. Should they slow down and let not beat everybody really bad, you know? I, I don't understand it. And Tiger Woods, I don't know if you remember the U.S. Open where he won by like 13 strokes. Should he got on the mm-hmm. 18th green and, and 16 putted so he could only win by two? <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody said Michael Phelps was annihilating people at his as gold medals. I mean, he was beating them, you know, he'd do the 200 meter and, and he looked back and there's somebody 30 yards behind him. Should he have waited until they almost got there so he didn't beat them so badly and then tapped it? and been done you know people pick and choose what they think is running up but like you said sometimes when you try to pull the brakes off or the gas off i don't think you ought to go down there and try to keep your starters in and ram people and throw bombs and run trick plays i don't want to do that i don't want to embarrass them but 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 i don't think the other coach most of them want you to purposely you know pull the pull the dogs off and 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 not try at all with your other guys you know just we're going to take four knees right here and give you the ball and those kinds of things onside kicks i'm great with we're not going to onside kick and try to get the ball back on that but my defense is going to play hard when they go out there if they're up 35 and my offense i still want them to play hard because they deserve to get to play hard and run a normal offense and those kinds of things so i know that's a little bit more than you wanted but you just got to cut me off because i talk too much no that's exactly (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly the answer the answer that, that I would expect because you've been in those situations so many times, I imagine, and you can't just all of a sudden dial it back in that system. I, I saw the quote from Bill Belichick about you being the best high school football coach in the country and that he has called you before and consulted you. What are those conversations like? I mean, what types of questions does he ask you? Uh, Bill gave me a little bit too much credit there. It's always me asking the questions. <laughs> That's, I've learned a lot more from him. I think, <laughs> I, I think, I, I think that. But I do, I do love, I do love talking football with him and and listening to stories. You know, from you know, we watch, we get to watch it on television, watch those pro games, and and I've I've been fortunate to go to go to some of his games, a lot of his games, and and watch them live and stuff. But you know, to 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 listen to him tell the story, and then I like to ask him why and how and. And one of my favorites is is you know he was the defensive coordinator when the the Giants played the Buffalo Bills in the wide right, and uh, they had the K gun uh, the you know and, and Jim Kelly and they were running offense all over everybody and the game ended up being like twenty to nineteen in the Super Bowl. Listen to him talk about his scheme about how to stop somebody that nobody else could figure out how to stop. You know, just nobody could stop them. And I love hearing those stories and, and learning from it and, and asking him why on, on certain things. And I'm just big on the whys. And, and when you get a guy that I think is the best coach ever coached and, and hear him tell you why, you learn from it. So I, I, Bill gives me credit and, and he's too nice, but, I, but, but definitely I'm the, one, I'm, the one winning the, I'm the one winning the information war there, gaining information. I think there are college coaches who are fascinated to see how your approach works at this level, and they're going to be checking in on all of your scores. Do you think they're rooting for you, or they're hoping that you fail so they don't have to adopt and answer questions about why they don't do the things that you do? 
Another very, very good question. And uh, honestly, I can tell you, and I will not mention names, but I've already heard for a, from a couple that uh, are not pulling for me because if it's successful, they don't want to answer those questions. That exact thing was said. Yeah. So, And I get it. You know, it's stuff that they don't feel comfortable with. And, and what do, what is immediately the passion, and that's what makes football great, is the fans have so much passion for the sport. But what immediately does that passion cause? If somebody sees extreme success doing something different or a certain way, you know, they immediately want their team doing that too, especially if the team's not having as much success as normal. And, you know, it might be a team like Bama or Clemson. I mean, God, if they lose one game, the world's falling in. You know, and the sky's falling, so to speak. So, you know, nobody wants to answer those questions. So I definitely feel like, and I don't think I'm manufacturing that as motivation, but I definitely feel like that they're probably rooting against me just because I would be rooting against somebody too. I mean, you know, if, if, you know, if 50 teams went wishbone next year, I certainly hope they don't win the national championship because I don't want to run the wishbone. I don't want everybody pushing me going, Hey, the wishbone's the way, look at this, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I get it, but I think that's definitely, definitely a, a good point by you. The Kansas gig, you said uh, you'd take $90,000 per win um, it, it, throwing your name in, into the ring. And Andy Staples wrote about why you would have made a lot of sense. And the more I thought about it, the more I agreed with him. I know you're happy at Presbyterian and obviously share whatever you can on this, but how much consideration was there on their end? Oh, I don't think there was any by their leadership, to be honest with you. I, I got contacted by a couple of boosters and and guys like that, but nobody, nobody administratively. I think Andy did it as a, you know, a story and thought it should be something that's done, and and then it kind of took off a little bit. But no, 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 nobody, nobody from there. I don't think you know even thought twice about it to be honest with you. And and you know the the thing is, and and everybody knows the story of Kansas. And what they don't remember is mid two thousands, two thousand six, two thousand five. Kansas got up to rank number two and one in the country. I think they had a quarterback named Reese and and uh, or something like that. He was really good and and uh, they were pretty dang good. And and then you look how far they've fallen and losing to some you know FCS teams and things like that. But but they're at a point now where I personally, if I'm in leadership at a school that's that's really struggling, you know, and I'll give credit to Presbyterian. You're struggling with the way things are going. You keep hiring another coach and another coach and another coach. And it doesn't change any, you know, what are you, what are you really clinging to there? You know, what what are you doing that's different? Why is that going to be any different? And and I'm a big, I, I'm a big Les Miles fan. I, th- I think he's one of the best men in the game right, as far as football. I, I've spent time with him and love him. He's got a special way of making you feel like you're this celebrity when he talks to you. But, but I thought, you know, when they hired Les, for instance, Les is used to working with some pretty dang good athletes at LSU. And he wasn't going to get those athletes at Kansas. And I, and those are the hires that I don't get, you know. And, and you know, but that's not my job. You know, it's my, uh, you know, I'm like everybody else that questions why, you know, Presbyterian hired me. I get to question why other teams hire other teams. And, again, that's the great part of the passion of football. I love the game and like to ask why, and, and that, that was the time I did. But, but then again, I mean, I never had any real thoughts that, that they would hire me. But since I got talked to about it, I, I thought I'd throw that out there because they would have been getting a bargain. You know, I mean, if we don't win any games, they're paying zero dollars. And that's a lot less than they paid the last, you know, True. 10 coaches or whatever they've had. And and if we do, though, what if they do? If if, if we could win 10 games there for 900000 
What college in America at the FBS level wouldn't take that deal? Would we give 900000 for 10 games? They all would because you make way more than that on the back end. Talk me into it. Definitely. No doubt about it. I, I want to close you out here by running through like five in-game scenarios, and you tell me how you would play them. Does that work for you? Yeah. Perfect, perfect. I'll be quick. All you got to say is go for it or punt. Okay, um, so that, first now, one. You gotta it's fourth you gotta, and – Hold on. You got you to consider. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a chart guy where, you know, I get a lot more to consider exactly. than what you're able to provide me. So it will be a limited answer as far as, you know, I don't know how accurate. Okay. Fair enough. I'll try and provide as much context as possible for right. these, these scenarios here. So, first one, it's fourth and 30. You're on your own 25. You're up 14 points with two minutes left. Do you go for it or punt? Do they have any timeouts left? They've got two left. Fourth and what? Fourth and 30, own 25. Oh, yeah, we punt that. Okay. All right. That was more of a surprise than I was expecting. Uh, fourth and 15 on your own 18. You're up seven. There's four minutes left. Let's say they also have two timeouts left. Do you go for it or punt? No, you punt. Fourth 18. There's such a low chance right, gonna you're going to make one. that. There's a low chance you're going to make that. Too low. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. Start of the fourth quarter. You're up 21 points. Mm-hmm. Do you onside kick or do you send it deep? Uh, have we had any success at onside kicks earlier? Did it look like we were close to getting some? Or have we already gotten one? You got one. Oh, God. You've we're we're onside kicking for sure because we're undefeated if we're in that too. <laughs> All right. Uh, how about this? Away. It's the final it's three if we, seconds. If we get that one, it's over with. It's probably over with anyway, but True. it's really Good over point. with. <laughs> All right, final three seconds. You're down two points, and it's fourth and five on the opposing 25-yard line. You've got a kicker that you feel all right about. Maybe he makes like two-thirds of his kicks, which that's, a, that's not bad at all. Do you kick a field goal, or do you go for a touchdown? No. Again, you're on the 25-yard line. There's only one play left. And if he's got if he's got a sixty seven percent chance of making it, I, don't, I know I don't have a sixty seven percent chance of scoring a touchdown from there. So it's easy; you take the higher probability and go for. What if he's back. like a fifty fifty guy? No, I would I would have to know for, from the twenty five. You, you don't have a very good chance of scoring on one play, and so so True. it would have to, he would have to be a pretty low number for him because that 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 field goal wins it for you. Yeah. All right, last one. You're at home. It's noon on a fall Saturday, and for whatever reason in this scenario, you're not uh, at one of your own games. You flip on Iowa versus Northwestern. Kirk Ferentz punts the ball on fourth and one on the opposing team's 33-yard line. Do you throw your remote at the TV, or do you just belly laugh for the rest of the day? First of all, I wish you, you, wish, wish you wouldn't have used Kirk Ferentz because he's a great guy and a friend of Bill's, and I've got to meet him a couple times and hang out. So I hate that you used him. But that is something that Kirk. All right, Pat Fitzgerald. (laughs) Pat Fitzgerald does it then. All right, good. Yeah, flip it over. And I like Pat too. I've actually spent some time with him. But, (laughs) but uh, uh, I I just, I I just laugh. I just laugh and and feel bad for them that they hurt their chances to win right there because they're good guys. I actually hope for some other guys to do it, but but (laughs) but but uh, the guys I like, I, I don't, I don't hope for them to do it. I just feel bad for them. 
Absolutely. Kevin, this has been absolutely awesome. Really appreciate the time. Wishing you the best of luck this year. I, I cannot wait to see you take the college football world by storm, man. Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate you having me on. I, uh, a big fan and, uh, and love, love that you guys shed light on college football. And, you know, like I say, there's such a passion for it. It just gives people another way to read about their teams and, and, and read about some commentary and thoughts too. And everybody loves thinking about it. Appreciate that. Be well. Take care. Thanks. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Figuring it out today, we're talking mowing the lawn. I sat on this one for a bit. Sat <laughs> on it for a bit. A little story. Um, this past week, I was in Colorado with my buddies, as I, as I shared on last week's episode. Had an excellent time through the whole deal. A couple baseball games, a little hiking at Red Rocks, brewery tours. Had some great eats downtown Denver. Did you guys uh, see Dinger while you were there? Did not see <laughs> Dinger. I've been asked about that multiple times. So did not accidentally shout something that could be confused as a racial slur at the <laughs> Rockies mascot. That was not me. Um, probably wasn't close enough. We got seats a little bit higher up. We were just there to have a good time and relax. We're basically watching AAA baseball. So we're like, ah. We don't necessarily need to sit like fifth row, although tickets were very, very affordable, which was nice. Listen, uh, you might have dodged a bullet. <laughs> true, true. Good point. Good point. Don't want to be thrown into the crosshairs of that. I, I met up with Peter Burns as well, who like just happened to, ironically enough, be at the same exact Cubs Rockies game. Oh, sweet. He had much better seats too. Way, way better seats, of course. That's how that's how PB rolls. I'm actually currently in Chicago visiting my mom. And Lauren is flying in, and we're spending a few days at my mom's lake house up in Door County. I've uh, I've actually still been working the entire time that I've been here. I kind of feel bad with how much work I've been doing lately. But when you go on a buddy's trip, that's just kind of the price you pay. Beside the point, I bring this up because I'm away from my house August 3rd through the 15th. That is nearly two weeks. This time of year in Florida, especially with all the rain that we get on a daily basis, you cannot go two weeks without mowing the lawn. You just can't. We have a corner lot, so I think it stands out a little bit when you drive past in our neighborhood, and I always feel really bad if our lawn gets way too long. I had that happen when I came back from SEC Media Days. So I was either gonna pay someone to do it or basically just drop enough. No, I didn't, I didn't have to do that. Um, I was gonna pay somebody to do it because I didn't really wanna come back and have to look at that. But then Lauren stepped up and said, no, I got this. She mowed the lawn once in college and that's it. So I'm like, all right, fire away. Not necessarily doubting her, but I filled up the tank, made sure the oil was right, instructed her, told her to do the three border rows, then work horizontally. And of course, Lauren being Lauren, she figured it out and crushed it. Um, and probably could have figured it out had I not said anything because she knows how to use Google. Um, I didn't doubt that she would, but mowing the lawn is my thing. And I usually love doing it. It was like a rite of passage when I was a kid. So I always take that responsibility of mowing the lawn. The problem with Lauren doing it is that it made me realize that she went from needing me for like three things to now only needing me for two things. Mm -hmm. That is opening jars and doing quick math. Okay. That is all I'm good for. Oh, and I also know how to, I, I know how to work the DVR. That's about it. Huge. But other than that, um, Lauren could function as a very independent human being, whereas me, not so much. Um, Will, do you mow the lawn at your place? No. So 
whenever I tell people how I grew up, they don't believe me, but I literally grew up on six acres of land in the middle of the bayou. Like we, we didn't have neighbors. And so growing up, uh, it would have been actually incredibly like non-practical for me to mow the lawn because like we had to have a company come out and do it because not only mm. was it up and down terrain through the bayou stuff like that but like our yard is full of animals like not happy animals like gators and wolves and snakes and stuff like that so there was never really a time growing up where my mom was angry enough at me to be like go mow the lawn because you know if you're the normal lawn mowing age that's i'm not gonna say a death sentence but it could go bad real fast uh, oh yeah, <laughs> and so it's funny because yeah, it, it was just it never made sense because like I said, we had to have a company do it. One person, even like if I was like Connor, mow that lawn, it would literally take you two or three days because it was just up and down and all this different stuff. Uh, and then as you know, I've gotten my first house. Um, we don't really have a ton of sun, so right now I'm interested to see y'all's takes on this because that's something me and Brittany are kicking back and forth as far as. Do we need to get grass? How does that work? And exactly what you're saying right now is kind of my argument for like, uh, we just have like pine straw right now and it looks good. You know, if we go away for two weeks, we're gonna have to like bribe one of the neighborhood kids or like get some goats or something and like figure it out. The goat's idea is not a bad one, man. <laughs> See, this you, is why I can't have nice things. <laughs> Cause that's what my mind exactly. goes to and it's like. You, you get your, <laughs> buddy, you get yourself a goat. You talk about a Southern way to get it done. That mm -hmm. would be, that would be that would be paving the way for for everybody else. There's goats at this place in Door County that we go to that are on the roof. They literally graze grass on the roof. It's a place called Al Johnson's. Look it up if you've never seen it before. Anyways, I think that question about the low maintenance thing is a good one because there are a lot of people that do not want any grass on their property because they don't want to have to mow their lawn. I think grass just looks good. Mm -hmm. Sorry, when I go to Arizona and I see all these places that don't have any grass, I'm like, that kind of sucks. I feel like you're missing out on something. Being able to mow the lawn is something that I have looked forward to as a long, for a long time. And when we saw this house and I saw the front yard, I was like, yup, sign me up. Let's mm -hmm. make it happen. And I'm like right on that edge of needing a riding mower. If I were, if I had any sort of physical ailments, this would definitely be a riding mower type situation. Just because the, the front yard and the way that it's shaped, it's just, it, it takes a good amount of time. It takes, you know, hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes or something like that to do. And a lot of people don't want to necessarily take that time. So, took it to the Facebook group, asked the questions, do you love or hate mowing the lawn? Do you use a riding mower, self-propelled, push mower? Godspeed if you do a push mower. Although if you have like the right amount of space and it's just a very small patch, I guess that makes sense. When is it not worth it to mow your own lawn and to just hire somebody to do it? Is there a better feeling than seeing a fresh mow? Shout out to Adam Kramer, Kegs and Eggs, big on that. And obviously, of course, this is just gonna be a new thing. Any horror stories are always gonna be welcome in figuring it out. Mm -hmm. We will always say those. So. Let's start with, I feel like we start with Drew Page every time. Drew Page, we're gonna get to you. We're gonna get to you in a minute. But let's start with Jonathan Mason. Jonathan says, love mowing the lawn. Working from home last year had me notice and start taking care of my lawn more than I had done ever before. Results aren't immediate, but 18 months later, all my hard work has paid dividends in the health and lushness of the turf. Ooh, dropping lushness in here. It's Bermuda and it has become a nice hobby. Next spring, I plan on doing some major leveling so that the mow is even better. I push mow now not not self-propelled he says and it's a great way to catch up on the podcast and clear out my head recent pick attached and he's got his dog just basking in this fresh mo 
the ability oh. to rehab your lawn is something that I didn't really understand because I didn't ever have a lawn growing up that needed rehabbing. But so far, because that's what I've done, thanks to my neighbor, Rick, who helped me out with being able to keep my, my levels at the right spot. That is a prideful feeling, man. That is a prideful feeling. And your dog certainly appreciates it. If, you're, if you can't see this picture, this is bad radio, but check out Jonathan Mason's picture of his dog living its best life on that freshly mowed lawn. Michael Dark says, I bought my previous house because it had a tiny yard. It only took about 30 minutes to cut. Okay, buying a house because it has a tiny yard is like what we were talking about before. It's not that it's a bad thing and if you don't wanna to have to buy a mower or something like that, that's something that you should probably have to consider. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. I, I just always thought that that, that was just such a satisfying feeling to be able to look back on this body of work. And in a weird way, it's like, it's almost like vacuuming. Sometimes it's kind of nice to look at your house when it's freshly vacuumed and you're like, oh man, I did all that and it feels so much cleaner now. Um, but nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Mike Swick, adult peer pressure forces me to mow. So people like me, essentially. Mike, I'm sorry, man. Connor's just sitting out there in a rocking chair, just, Hey, pal, are you getting around to mowing the old greenery there, pal? Just wondering. You doing, uh, <laughs> doing a little edging today? Uh, what do you got going on? Uh, you know, going to bag it? Not going to bag it? You looking at a Honda? Looking at, looking at a John Deere? A little Toro, maybe? Man, I just realized, I'm like, whatever you see my house, you're, you're going to be so confused. I just have a very interesting house. And uh, so we, <laughs> I don't think I told you the story, but we had to get a tree removed because our old owners were kind of like, didn't totally think things through and they like pruned the tree wrong and it started dying. So we, we signed the contract to get this tree taken out. They didn't communicate it with us and they just took our tree like in the middle of the day and didn't tell us. Uh, and then they were like, hey, do you want to fill this in? And I was like, uh, sure, man. Like after it was gone. So we have, like I said, we have like black mulch and brown pine straw and they put brown mulch where the tree was. So, so it just clashes with our yard. But the issue is now we're in the situation of like, how do you get all this crap out of your yard? Cause I mean, it must've been like three or four of those big old bags of mulch. And we literally have to go haul it somewhere to get it off. And it like clashes with everything. So like point being, I totally feel the adult peer pressure. Cause like I, every time somebody walks by our yard, I, I, I just look at them and I'm like, I bet they're just like, where did all that mulch come from? What are these people doing? Yeah. <laughs> right. Hey man. Do what works for you and sometimes the low maintenance route, and you know, not the worst thing to do until you're figuring it out. That's what we're trying to do here today. Jay Woody, my last house had six acres and Memphis is usually about 95 degrees and 90% humidity a great majority of the summer. So we would literally start to mow at about 5 a.m. with headlights trying to get it all done before it got hot. Never managed to do it all before the heat hit though. That ruined me on mowing forever. I'm against it now. If I could afford field turf, I'd install it like yesterday. <laughs> field turf is an idea, actually. You shouldn't have said that, Jay Woody, because now I'm gonna, I'm gonna do some research on that. Jay, I saw some field turf when we were walking through some neighborhoods in Denver. And it's an interesting look. It's an interesting look. You wanna be like the Brady Bunch, that's perfectly fine. You know, you do you. What I will say, I'm surprised that you were able to mow that early because depending on how long it is, mowing 
early in the morning, at least in Florida, this time of year is really difficult because the grass is still so wet mm -hmm. and it's brutal. It is absolutely brutal when you have to like stop it and start it. You got to lift the mower up. You got to get some of the stuff out of the blades and it just gets stuck in there. And I, I try and avoid, I, I try and find that balance of mowing when it's not too hot and also not mowing when it's really early. And I know that the grass is just not going to want to to necessarily do anything. So it's a balance, man. It's a balance. I just embrace the heat at this point. It's just going to be hell. It's Orlando in August. It's going to happen, man. I'm just going to roll with it. Tanner Stars. Ironically, when I mow my lawn, that's when I listen to this podcast. Oh, hope you're having a nice mow right now, Tanner. I put some ear protection over my headphones as I ride. I push and trim my property. Um, oh, as I as I ride, push, and trim my property. I get the entire episode in while I work. Two birds, one stone. Thank you, Tanner. Hope your lawn's looking good right just now. Kelsey Picker says, I don't mow, in parentheses, I got married so I didn't have to. She's married to Emery Picker, of course. But my brother broke three mowers this week. He's special, but we love him. Three? Not one. Not two, but three mowers. Emery piggybacked and said, yes, he legitimately broke three mowers, two riding and one push. They were all old and borrowed from other people, but yes. I have questions. I have a couple questions. Are you riding over just trees and hoping that they mow? Because that's an easy way to break your mower. Are you riding over a lawn that has toys, random objects, human beings. I don't know. <laughs> a stump, perhaps? You're breaking... I, I, man, three mowers in one week is quite the rap sheet. That is darn impressive in a not-so-good way. Um, breaking two riding mowers, too. I don't know how you do that. It, yeah, they, they can all be old and borrowed, but... You're running over stuff that, that you should not be running over. That's what this comes down to. And you got to clear that stuff off. That's why you got to do the primo property, you know, like inspection where you walk around, you pick up all the big sticks, throw them onto the sidewalk, into the garbage can, whatever you got to do. Just, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Break three mowers, shame on me. I don't know. Um, that's bizarre, though. Hopefully you don't get a fourth one. Um, <laughs> Kelly Pickers, Kelsey Pickers, brother. Eli Truon says, Kelsey, Kelsey I like every year, like my, my like favorite couple, like when they explain, like we do the filler, the figuring out stuff. I always love the perspective on stuff. We got to hang out at some point during this football season because yeah, like their, like their approach to stuff is just like, I, I love it. It's always like a little bit quirky, but it works, you know, they're very rational people. Actually, let's, let's, let's piggyback off that. Let's, let's read Emery's comment. Um, he said, I love it in the right situation. I bought a new riding mower last year because my current, um, actually moving tomorrow, yard is a hell of a hill. Mm -hmm. If I get up early enough on a Saturday to get out there before the heat, um, I do the baseball field lines in the yard going diagonal. I love that. Mm -hmm. If it rains all weekend and I have to mow in the heat of the day during the week after work, it is probably going to be uneven and in side to side lines until next time with absolutely no regrets. Uh, this heat will have you disregarding your lawn in the new house, I plan to do the baseball field lines and full-on Georgia-themed yard paint every week. Let's go. That is dedicated. That is dedicated. I would expect nothing less. If you do the checker 
I haven't been able to quite figure that out. I don't think I have. I think that's a riding mower exclusive type of deal to be able to do the checker because you can't really pull that off in the same sort of way with the you know with the the self propelled push or something like that, which is what I prefer. That's at least what I grew up with and what I, I like to be able to to mow my lawn with. But the push mower, man, it's uh, if you're just doing the the old fashioned one, Godspeed, Godspeed. Eli Truon says, I like my push mower. The wrong time to mow is when it is too hot. The best time to mow is at like eight in the morning. It's starting to get hot in Kansas, but not too hot. Um, I think it's, it's just hot everywhere right now. Everybody's feeling this pain, even in Canada right now. Even our biochemics expert is probably mowing his lawn, just out here struggling. Drew Page, we'll end with this one. Uh, he says, to me, mowing is God's way of punishing us for letting the band Buck Cherry happen. <laughs> Bro, that is a that is hey. a take. <laughs> I was so he says, it's like okay, boom. You created this abomination, Buck Cherry. All right, thousand winters for you, buddy. Did you just blow the speakers out of your mic with that? I'm God, see, you know, I've gotten you know constructive criticism that I can't laugh, but when I heard that mowing is God's punishment for Buck Cherry, I couldn't contain myself. I'm sorry. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Drew says, absolutely despise it with every fiber in my being, and I only mow because I have to make myself mow. The worst horror story I've ever had is when I was uh, a teenager. I ran over a stick, and it somehow shot out of the back of the mower and hit me right in the face and missed my eye by probably an inch. Ugh. Again, got to do that pre-mow inspection. Get rid of all your sticks. Throw them to the side. Sometimes one's going to sneak up on you. But you know what? You just got to be on your toes when you mow. That's what I always say. Thank you to everybody who submitted responses in the Facebook group. If you are not already, go to the Saturday Down South Podcast Facebook group. Join. Hear your name read on air and figuring it out. We're going to two podcasts a week next week. We're doing it. We're making it happen. Two pods a week. It is mid-season form right now. Stay tuned on what days exactly those are going to be. We have a tentative plan in place, but you know, just refresh that podcast feed and you'll see it in there. Also, if you're not already subscribed, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored. We're going to have some upcoming announcements as well about the podcast that Matt Hayes plugged on this one a couple weeks ago. He's got some big things in the works with our friends over at Texas Pete. Leave us a five-star review, like, subscribe. Go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Subscribe to all things Saturday Down South right now. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.